This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 9, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, A.L. Ben David talks about a selfish gene pair, one a toxin and the other an antidote that have been masquerading as genes important for development. What does this mean about what we think of essential genes and about how we make species? Rachel Bernstein is here to talk about recent Science Careers columns, and Ryan Cross is here with online news. Now we have Ryan Cross, an intern for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have one on racism and the police in the United States. Video has changed the national conversation on policing in this country. We've seen beatings and killings of black people again and again. And the assumption is these incidents are racially motivated. But it's really hard to pin that down. You can't ask people who are on trial if race had something to do with it. You really want something a little bit more quantitative, Mm -hmm. a little bit more authoritative. So here, researchers in California have tried to do this. What did they do, Ryan? Well, a a team from Stanford University decided to tackle a more subtle form of racial bias that begins long before any of these acts of violence. So they wondered if police officers talked to white and black citizens that they just pulled over with the same degree of respect. Since the Oakland Police Department equips their officers with body cams, the researchers were able to listen to everything the police said from about a thousand traffic stops made back in April 2014. So by transcribing those interactions, they came up with more than 36,000 turns of conversation. So these were phrases like, sorry to stop you, or can I see that driver's license again? And next, they recruited a bunch of college students to score how respectful those phrases were. So the students got to see the officer's language in context of what the driver said right before, but they didn't know the driver's race. The scoring on this is kind of the tricky part of the paper. How was respectfulness evaluated? Yeah, this this is a little tricky. So basically, a bunch of college students rated a subset of these phrases by how respectful, polite, friendly, formal, and impartial they were perceived to be. So the researchers then identified which phrases and words were most often correlated with interactions that the students scored as respectful. They found that formal titles like sir and ma'am, as well as phrases that express gratitude, reassurance, or gave agency to the driver, such as you may, were all considered respectful. Filler words like um and uh were actually rated positive as well. 
Uh, and informal titles like brother or first names and the phrase hands on the wheel, those were all rated as less respectful. When they toted up all these interactions and they took out any confounding factors like age, gender, officer race, etc., what did they see in terms of this connection between respectful language and the race of the person being pulled over? Well, the first thing they saw was that police officers spoke with less respectful language towards black drivers compared to white drivers. Uh, but the researchers are also the first to point out that these differences are subtle. On the low end, an officer said, all right, my man, do me a favor. Just keep your hands on the steering wheel real quick. Wait, and when you say low end there, you mean that's like the disrespectful end. Yeah. So that was they didn't actually measure what was disrespectful. They just measured what was more and less respectful. So this was among the least respectful things that the officer said. Right. And on the high end of respect, an officer might have said, there you go, ma'am. Drive safe, please. The correlations weren't always perfect either. For example, the phrase for you was rated among the most respectful phrases. But officers actually said that phrase to black drivers much more than they did to white drivers. But black drivers were disproportionately referred to with informal names and told to keep their hands on the wheel much more than white drivers were. With all of this data, the researchers were able to train a computer to identify the race of a driver with 68% accuracy. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, now we have numbers that back up claims mm -hmm. of racism in the way police treat black people. Mm -hmm. what, what happens now? Well, for one, this study only looked at the words the officers spoke, so it didn't consider their tone of voice or the citizens' facial expressions and body movements. So future studies might start to look at those variables and see if we can learn something from that as well. Another interesting thing, this study also found that these results were broadly applicable to all police officers, and black police officers also showed less respect to black drivers. So police departments might be able to use this information to train their officers to be more mindful of using respectful language. And another idea is that officers could be given an automated score on how respectful their language is immediately after stopping a driver. Of course, some people might not like that additional layer of scrutiny, but who knows? It could be a lifesaver by helping to deflate confrontation. Now we have a story on the oldest homo sapiens. I know it must seem like we're constantly finding the oldest X or the first example of Y, but this is a really old find and in a really unexpected place. Where did this new batch of bones and artifacts come from, Ryan? Right. These fossil finds can be really hard to keep track of. And now scientists are discovering that our earliest human ancestors were perhaps even more spread out across the African continent than we imagined. For years, scientists have considered the Great Rift Valley in East Africa to be the birthplace of the earliest members of our species, Homo sapiens. A 195,000-year-old pair of skullcaps from Ethiopia has widely been regarded as the oldest human remains until now. A human skull from a cave in Morocco in the northeast corner of Africa has been redated to 300,000 years old. And some people think this makes a lot of sense, actually, because human evolution diverged from our closest cousins, the Neanderthals, about 500,000 years ago. So this is a nice specimen that sits in between. This is a lot older than has been seen before. And the appearance of these skulls has led researchers to suggest that humans evolved face first. What what does that mean? Yeah. So if you look at the skull straight on, you'll notice it has modern facial features. It has thinner brow ridges than the Neanderthals, except for its teeth, which are a bit larger than you'd expect from modern humans. 
But when you look at the skull from the side, its brain case is more elongated, unlike the rounder skulls of humans today. But also its face doesn't project outwards, like that of the Neanderthals. Comparing older to more recent Neanderthal skulls shows a similar pattern where the face evolves before the rest of the skull. So anthropologists are starting to suggest that maybe the face is what evolves first in evolution. Although there isn't really a clear reason for that. What would be the evolutionary (laughs) pressure for that one? Okay, so in order to find this, uh, in order to get a date on this find, the researchers looked at both the bones that we're talking about, but also tools. What kinds of tools did they have way back then? So the team found hundreds of stone blades, which were filed to have sharp edges. And they also had burnt flint tools indicating that these people knew how to control fire. These tools were actually crucial for determining the new older date of the human. Since the minerals in flint were heated by fire, the researchers used a technique called thermoluminescent dating to measure the radiation dose of the materials and estimated their age to be about 314,000 years old. So that matches what came out of the bones. Yes. So the bones were a little younger, but all in that same range of about 300,000 years old. Okay. And all of this came from the Moroccan cave where excavations began back in 2004. So partial skulls, jawbones, leg and arm bones suggest that at least five people were living there. Hmm. There is some controversy over naming, calling these homo sapiens. Mm-hmm. What else could they be? You're right. Not everyone thinks these bones are bona fide humans. Some paleoanthropologists are suggesting that instead they're a highly evolved Homo heidelbergensis, that's a species that lived about 700,000 to 200,000 years ago and had large brow ridges and brain cases. But in any case, the researchers are not implying that these Moroccan individuals are direct ancestors of humans. Instead, these findings suggest that early human evolution was already well in progress across Africa 300,000 years ago. Last up, we have a story on weighing a white dwarf. How does one weigh a star or get its mass? The best way is to start with a binary pair of stars and then look at the way their masses and orbits interact. But what about a solo star? Researchers have gone back to Einstein to calculate the mass of a lone white dwarf. Ryan, can you start us off with this Einstein part? Mm -hmm. So Einstein's general theory of relativity predicts that massive objects like stars bend the path of light. So if light from one distant star is traveling towards us, it may get bent by another star along the way. Back in 1936, Einstein published a paper here at Science proposing a technique to measure the mass of a nearby star that eclipses and bends the light of a distant star. If the alignment is perfect, Einstein predicted that light from the distant star would form a circular ring. These Einstein rings have actually been observed when one galaxy distorts the view of a more distant galaxy. But for stars in our own Milky Way, this event is so uncommon and the effect is so small that even Einstein didn't think the experiment could be done. But now astronomers have found the perfect pair of stars for the job. How did they pick which star to measure? Well, Einstein didn't have the handy Hubble telescope at his disposal to spot this subtle shift in light. But a group of astronomers scoured the sky for stars that might eclipse one another And they found a white dwarf called Stein 2051b, which is a mere 18 light years from Earth. It was due to position itself right in front of another star in March 2014. I think we should stop here and say what a white dwarf is. Good point. So when a star like our sun runs through all of its fuel, it leaves a super dense hot core behind. And this very faint star is called a white dwarf. How do they weigh this white dwarf? 
when it passed in front of the background star, the scientist estimated its mass to be 0.675 solar masses, or about two-thirds of our own star, the sun. And uh, by the way, the sun will eventually become a white dwarf too, but fortunately that's about five billion years from now, so I think we're safe. Yep. Is this proof of a principle that we can now weigh stars, or does the weight of this particular star actually matter? So scientists are pretty excited about these results. Previous observations of this particular white dwarf size, temperature, and light led astronomers to believe it should weigh about 0.67 solar masses. But the mass measured through the binary star calculation that we talked about earlier suggested it was a lighter star at only 0.5 solar masses, so they were kind of confused. But these new calculations cast doubt on whether the star actually has a binary pair, while also nicely confirming Einstein's predictions from over 80 years ago. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Ryan? Well, Sarah, there's a cool story about how a new T-Rex fossil shows its skin was covered in scales, not feathers like some scientists thought. Yay, no feathers. No no more feathered T-Rexes. You can rejoice and cry. Another article describes new energy research that cheaply turns sunlight and carbon dioxide into fuel. And for Science Insider, we have the news about how President Donald Trump decided to keep Francis Collins on as the director of the National Institutes of Health, who was first appointed by President Barack Obama back in 2009. And we also have a story on proposals aiming to clarify the meaning of retractions in scientific publishing. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you. Ryan Cross is an intern for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. This episode is sponsored by Dignity Health. Dignity Health is the fifth largest health system in the U.S. and the largest in California. With a history rooted in kindness, the mission and values Dignity Health were founded upon remain the same today. Polls show that Americans want to be more mindful, to pay attention to where they are and what they're doing in the moment. But busy lives and busy brains make this very difficult to accomplish. Sometimes beating back burnout means taking literally two minutes to yourself. Dignity Health is working to make mindfulness a practice for 39 of its hospitals, encouraging employees to set aside daily time for quiet contemplation. Join Dignity Health and set aside two minutes every day to check in with yourself and reflect on your relationships, work, or daily activities. To help promote this effort, share how you're making mindfulness a daily habit using the Take Two Mins hashtag. That's Take the Number Two Mins hashtag on social media. And by visiting dignityhealth.org slash take two mins for more mindfulness research and tips. Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, came out about 40 years ago now, but we're just starting to understand the many manifestations of this concept. Eyal Ben-David is here to talk about a newly discovered selfish gene element. In this case, a pair of genes acting together in the C. elegans nematode. (laughs) Welcome, Eyal. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) Uh, Let's start out with the basic selfish gene concept. What is it, and can you give us a few well-known examples? Okay, so we know that the genes are the blueprint to make up an organism. And we think of genes as really contributing it, or every specific gene is contributing something to that organism. But selfish genes really aren't like that. There are genes that propagate themselves in the population, but they don't 
really contribute anything to their host, to the to the organism that they're part of its genome. They only contribute to their own to their own self. So they're, so they're selfish. They're not proteins that help our cells. They're not they're not giving us eye color. They're just hanging around because they can, and they actually do things to make themselves persist. So can you talk about some yeah. examples of that? Yes. So they can promote their own transmission by different mechanisms. So some of them, for example, the most common uh, ones are called transposons, and they can just copy themselves to different locations in the genome. And they can propagate themselves that way by increasing their copy in the genome. There are others, examples that we discovered is one of those examples that can actually kill those individuals that don't inherit them. So they're very efficient in transmitting themselves, but they actually do it by killing some of the progeny of the, of the organism. How did you find this latest example? So we were working with C. elegans, which is a small worm that's actually a very common model organism in research. Most of the work done in C. elegans, and this is true for most of the model organism, was done with a single lab reference strain. And the lab that I work in, part of the things that we've been doing is trying to look at more and more wild, natural isolates of this worm and study their biology and see what's different between those worms and the standard reference lab strain. Mm -hmm. The way we discovered this one was that we looked at a new isolate that very few people looked at it before, and we crossed it with the lab reference strain, and we saw that some of the progeny were dying. And we characterized the way that those progeny were dying, and that led us to understanding that what was happening was that the lab strain has those toxin antidote genes, this toxin antidote selfish element, and that the wild strain didn't have them. And so when they were crossing, some of the progeny were dying because of that toxin. So some of the progeny were getting the toxin, but not the antidote. That's basically the mechanism. The way that it works is that the toxin is produced by the mother. So the toxin is inherited to all of the progeny. So it's deposited in the oocytes and all of the progeny inherit it. However, the antidote needs to be made by the progeny, by the developing embryo. If you get a cross of these two worms, all the progeny are going to inherit the toxin because they get it from the mother. It's maternally deposited. But those progeny that only inherit the wild allele that doesn't encode the toxin and antidote, they don't have the antidote now to defend themselves from the maternally deposited toxin. Right, because the offspring get 50% of their DNA from the wild side and 50% from the lab side. Exactly. And what happens is that the way that we discovered it was that the first generation of the cross were all okay because they all had one copy that didn't have the toxin and the antidote and one that had both of them. But then the grandchildren from that cross are the ones where it starts segregating and some of the progeny only get the wild allele. Mm -hmm. So they don't have that protective allele from the mother. Exactly. And how's this particular scenario been seen before where you have to have the toxin and the antidote in order to have living offspring? So we know of a few examples. So actually one example, which was also in worms, was discovered in the same lab that I work at, the Kugliak lab. And they discovered a paternal toxin and an antidote that has to be expressed by the embryo. So it's kind of a reciprocal uh, mm -hmm. kind of a selfish gene where there is a toxin that is deposited in the sperm. And again, the embryo needs to create the antidote. So this is different because the, the mother is giving the antidote. One thing that is different about this story is that the mother is giving the antidote. Uh, but we actually know one example from the literature from the early 90s of a maternal effect, so a, a toxin antidote that is also maternal. And that is in the flower beetle, it's called Medea. 
but there we still don't know the genes that are responsible for it. For it. And we could actually go in and because C. elegance, the worm we were working with is such a powerful model organism and have lots of genetic tools, we could actually find out the genes that are responsible for this, that the genes that are the toxin and the antidote. And that turned out to be really, really interesting. And this is, this is one of the big implications of this paper. You know, when we test the function of a gene or to at least try to figure out how important it is, you disable that gene and you knock it out. And if an organism dies or doesn't develop, the gene is considered essential, which is what was going on with this antidote before your paper. This kind of throws it a wrench into this approach of, you know, well, how important is a gene? Well, the animal or the organism dies if it doesn't have it, right? Exactly. And because this gene that, that can cause the antidote was actually discovered over 25 years ago. And the way it was discovered was exactly right, like that. They, they mutated all kinds of genes in the worms and they saw that they mutate this gene. And now those worms fail to develop well. And they actually fail to develop their feeding organ, part of their head. So they said, okay, this is a gene that is critical. It's essential for the development of that part of the head. But they were all working with this reference lab strain that everybody works with, and that has an active toxin. So now when you go in and mutate the antidote, it looks like, you know, you mutated a critical part of the cell, a critical part of the genome. But actually, you, it's only critical. It's only essential because you have that toxin. Right. And how can you tell the difference then between a very important interaction that requires two different gene products and there being a lethal toxin and an antidote pair? That's a great question. And so there are two things that are particular to this system. So like you said, there are many systems where you have proteins working together to make some function. Here you have something of an antagonistic interaction. So if you only have one of the genes, it's actually lethal. If you have the, only the other, the, only the antidote, you're perfectly fine. And if you have both, you're fine because the antidote works against the toxin. And also they're linked genes, they, they go together. The other thing that is unique to this is that here you can actually see worms that are out in the wild. They have been isolated from the wild. And they're perfectly fine without those genes. And usually developmental genes are very important. And, you know, if you don't have them, now the worm that doesn't have them is going to be selected again. Right. It's going to be at a great disadvantage. But here we're finding wild worms, wild isolates that, that seem to be perfectly fine without those genes. And there I think it's really, that I think was critical in this case to actually say this is likely to be a selfish genetic element. What does this suggest about how common selfish genes or selfish systems might be in genomes? So I think it definitely suggests that they, they may be more common than previously thought. Uh, because we knew of a few examples from the literature, the, one that, the ones that I told you about, and there are some other examples. Uh, but I think that this shows that even genes that we think are bona fide, important part of the of development of organisms can turn out to actually be selfish uh, genetic elements. And, uh, and I think it really underlines the importance of, of working with natural variation and working with natural wild isolates. And I think we're going to find in upcoming years more of these examples. If organisms had many different kinds of pairings like this, basically if the genes aren't both uh, present, it prevents certain types of matings and they won't, you know, they won't have successful offspring. Is this a way of creating or splitting off new species? Is this basically isolating certain strains? 
So that's a question we're definitely very interested in. Already, these two worms that we worked with have two of these elements because they have the one that we carried the lab discovered before the paternal one and now this one. So already a large fraction of the progeny are dying. And you can think that maybe if you have more and more of these, then basically when, when we're talking about speciation, right, we're talking about reproductive isolations. We're talking about individuals who now can't mate and, and successfully mate and create offspring. So you can think of these elements as a way of getting there. We don't really know yet if this is a, if, if that's the way that things work really. And we don't have lots of strong evidence, but we're looking for more of these. I think that when we characterize more species and more of these elements, we might be able to find examples for it in the future. I do think that, that we're going to find stuff like this in people. That's a great question. The problem is with this type of elements is because the way that they work, that they kill those individuals that don't inherit them, that they're super efficient in driving themselves to fixation in populations. So, and actually the worms are hermaphroditic, so they can self-fertilize. If there were, instead of like that, if they were just uh, like we are, right? Male and females mating, then this uh, selfish element would drive itself to fixation really, really fast. So we think that there could be, in principle, there's no reason why there wouldn't be also in humans, but because of the, the way that the population works in, in humans, that they would likely to already have been fixed. You don't expect to see one arise and then people... Yeah, I mean, there are definitely examples, known examples of, uh, document examples of couples where both of them have had children before with different with different partners, oh, right. but now they, they come together and they can. So you could think, but I mean, that's, again, that, that's an observation. We don't have, we need to find an example of, of, again, of linked genes that one of them looks to be essential, but it's only essential if you don't mutate the other genes, right. which is, and if we found that, if we found that in humans, then that could be the mechanism. And I think that, yeah, if we found something like that in humans, that could be really important, of course. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Al Ben David writes about selfish genes in this week's issue of Science. So this week we're trying something new. Rachel Bernstein, editor of the Career Section at Science, is here. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks. Great to be here. And we're going to talk about a slew of career articles that have come out recently on stress, mental health, and working in the sciences. But first, let's talk about uh, the career section more generally. What kinds of articles are you publishing and what is your remit? So our basic idea is to provide some practical information and guidance about how to have a happy and successful career. And that's for people who are planning to stay in research and for those who are looking to leave. Uh, and then we also try to get into some of the thornier issues that are going on in the scientific community right now. So a big one would be the problems with diversity and inclusion, and also these issues of stress and mental health that we're going to talk about today. So our, our primary audience is mostly early career researchers, uh, particularly grad students and postdocs, but we're also hoping that we're having some influence on some more senior folks and administrators and policymakers so that we can move the needle on some of these issues. 
And these articles are, some of them are reported, but other ones are actually first-person accounts? Yeah. So we have our uh, weekly Working Life series, which is a personal essay series in the back of the magazine where uh, people can talk about all sorts of career issues that we're facing, including one recently about dealing with stress. There's definitely been this theme of stress and mental health in the career section lately. Is it because there's more literature coming out about this? Are scientists more stressed? Are you just getting lots of submissions of people talking about their stress? I'll say that there's definitely more literature coming out about it. I think that it has more to do with the sort of growing trend in overcoming the taboo about talking about mental health, uh, which is happening both in the scientific community, but also more broadly. So I can't say necessarily that scientists right now are more stressed than they were 20 years ago. Certainly, there's a lot of pressures. Uh, funding is really tight. Uh, there aren't very many tenure track faculty jobs. So there are a lot of reasons to be stressed. But I'm thinking right now that it's more about overcoming the taboo and dealing with mental health issues and taking it seriously and not just blowing it off, which is really important. Right. One article I saw was a series of how do I do with the work-life balance vignettes from different people at different career stages. The guy who was a high-level field hockey player and a grad student really stuck out to me. He practices 30 hours a week and works in the lab. His secret actually read the literature and plan ahead instead of doing a series of escalating and slightly faulty experiments. Uh, you know, basically be as efficient as possible. And it seems like solid advice. We also have had a few stories on mental health and one particularly on grad students. Is this a big problem that's um, getting picked up more? Is it definitely got it definitely got a lot of attention on social media? Yeah. And I think that this goes back to some extent to what we were talking about earlier, that a, a big part of the issue is acknowledging the problem and giving people the the ability to talk about it and to know that they're not alone. So that's a big part of it. I also think that for many grad students who are going straight from undergrad to grad school, that transition is really hard. You know, The structure is a lot less and you're really on your own to a very great extent to figure out what you're doing and how you're going to do it and how it's going to work. And that can be really empowering and it's a great opportunity for students to grow and develop and learn, but it can also leave people feeling lost and stressed and uh, depressed. And so it, it really is, it's a difficult time. And when you add in the fact that academia maybe is less open to talking about mental health issues than even the general population, a lot of mentors are not great about taking care of that side of their students' experience. And just being a scientist, you have a lot of failure. Experiments fail and papers get rejected, and it's a lot to deal with. So I think that definitely getting through grad school can be very mentally and emotionally taxing for, for many students. And I think the important thing for grad students to remember is that most institutions do have resources. Uh, so if you've noticed that you are experiencing something you can take advantage of those resources to to get the help and support you need. It's not something that you need to deal with on your own. Do you think this will continue to be a theme then? Um, it seems like kind of a timeless one at this point. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we don't want to make the situation worse by 
talking all the time about how grad students are depressed, but I think it's sort of one of those things where the first step is acknowledging the problem so that you can then do something to to make it better. So it is something that we want to continue having a conversation about to make sure that students and you know all scientists of whatever career stage uh, feel like they can acknowledge and talk about the challenges that they might be having and hopefully what they're doing to deal with it. Okay. All right. Did I make you feel too much like a mental health counselor? I no, I I'm not trained in this, so I'm ho- I hope that I'm not giving uh, bad advice, but I think that it's pretty safe to say that um, you know, talking about these issues and being aware of them and knowing that there are resources that you can um you can go to, you know, I I think that that's a really valuable take home. Yeah lesson. And um, it's something that I feel confident enough saying. Okay. Well, if people want to contribute, say, to the working life column, uh, should they write to you? Well, it's not quite to me, but we have an address that's SCI Career Editor. That's SCI Career Editor at AAAS.org. And we would love to hear your stories about what's going on in your life and career and what challenges you're facing and how you're overcoming them. Mm -hmm. And if you want to hear more about careers on the podcast, just let me know. This is an experiment. Uh, Science podcast at AAAS.org or tweet to at Science Magazine. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Rachel Bernstein is the editor of Science Careers. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.